Welcome to the SJ Child Show, where a little bit of knowledge can turn fear into understanding. Enjoy the show. Hi, and thanks for joining the SJ Child Show. I'm really, really excited today to talk to this guest. Um, I met him through the Global Autism Project, and as he will tell you, I've been stalking his profile. And um, no, not really, but I'm just following along with, um, you know, some of the things I find that his interests are my same interesting interests. So when you find like-minded people, you're supposed to stick with them, right? Uh, thank you so much for being here today, Andrew. I'm absolutely thrilled to be making um, not just your acquaintance, but everybody else's who's listening. So it's really great. It's great to we, you know, have been on camera together in a group setting, which is kind of funny to say, isn't it? But in Zoom setting together, but we haven't been able to get, you know, intimate and talk and really um, kind of get to know one another. And I find that. When I am listening to you in other conversations, I am in awe of the absolute brilliant mind that you have, number one. You speak so beautifully and eloquently, and also you have so much value to what you're saying. That's the most important part, obviously. So thank you for being here. And let's just start, I guess, at the beginning. I mean, and you can start at I was born. A lot of people like to start there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I don't really remember anything else uh, before that. So I feel like that's kind of where I have to start. Other than... I love it. Well, I was uh, born and raised here in Houston, Texas, um, almost 33 years old. I've um, been living here my entire life. So I'm fairly rare compared to most people that live here in terms of me having lived here my entire life. So it's definitely a city that people like to move to for the job opportunities. Um, but I just, I just got dumped here and I kind of liked it and I stayed here ever since. So, um, I, I would have not had any siblings. So I've been the only child of my two parents. Um, they're from Florida and Michigan, which, um, go figure how they ended up in Texas raising their kid. Um, if you've ever been to either of those States and you put them together, this is kind of what you get. <laughs> so my uh, mom is a professional musician, which is where I get my aesthetic side. And my dad is an engineer um, at NASA and he works in the failure analysis department. So he's responsible wow. for telling you when stuff is broken, which uh, <laughs> hopefully we will not need him to that to do that today. Um, and that is partially why I uh, attain some of those uh, traits as well. Like I, also think that I got a lot of autistic traits from an engineer as a father, as you can probably also guess that. <laughs> and does he have a diagnosis as well? We don't know. Of um, course, yeah. We might get it, but we just uh, we just learn to appreciate him for the way he is and the gift gifts that he brings our family. So I love that. And you know, another resonating uh, thing that is so a similarity between you and I, we're both only children. I think that there's a theme going here. I'm, I'm seriously like we must be separated at 12 years after birth. No, I'm just joking. Only <laughs> children. I'm an adult. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. We're now I'm, I'm trying to be one. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> when did you get your diagnosis at what age? 
there was a profound difference in the time frame from when I was diagnosed versus when I actually got told. I received it at three and a half when the DSM-4 had just come out and Asperger's syndrome was brand new. So that is what I identified with for the majority of my years since 13 or so years old in 2003 when I was finally notified of my diagnosis. But um, once I got into my mid-20s or so, I just became much more comfortable with using just the word autistic because I think that was more understood or broader, uh, even though the typical profile of somebody with that would have landed on the Asperger's domain, I sometimes use the word Aspie, um, yeah. and that's even the names we use for ourselves sometimes, is on average different. But I say on average because it's not always the case. There's some definite crossover. Isn't that the truth? And I, you know, being the late diagnosed at 45, um, have a whole different perspective to look at that and say, oh my gosh, what was I doing at three? What was I doing at seven and nine and 11 and 15 and all of these times that definitely were overlooked or, you know, called she's just, she's just dramatic. She's over emotional. She's this, she's that right. But now we can put our fingers on it a little bit more and, and have a better understanding of what that really meant and not what their ideas were you know, kind of everybody's opinions, right? So interesting. But now moving forward, how do you feel about the DSM, the diagnose like process and like, how can we do better from your perspective? As far as what you mean by the, what is the DSM currently defining as autistic nowadays? Yeah, like how, how, it's so broad. To me, it seems is as if it doesn't really give understanding for each situation, which of course you can't, you can say bread and that could mean thousands of times or whatever, hundreds of times of bread (laughs) and grains and everything. So I think it's kind of the same, right? I think there needs to be a little bit better categorization with dignity, of course. That last word you said would have been one of the things that I would have mentioned. Um, I think that we are doing a great job with delineating the technical details of what is autism specifically, how does it manifest, and we're even starting to get a little bit more detailed. Like we didn't used to, we didn't used to have information about specialized repetitive interests in the same way that we do now. And it's certainly been a part of the autistic um, framed mind for as long as we've been diagnosing it. But it's not been until recently that we've looked at that as potentially a good thing. And that's one aspect of the part of dignity that's we're, we've been lacking for a long time, but hopefully now that's changing. Mm-hmm. So the last time that I had a psych eval, it um, the only real positive sentence about the autism diagnosis that they, of course, reaffirmed was there was that you need to work with somebody that is help him discover how his unique brain functions in the environment. Well, okay, that's neutral, which is better than saying, oh, well, you're probably going to end up in an institution or you're not going to be able to work or live, <sighs> which is where we were in 93, unfortunately. Mm, I was yeah. diagnosed, but 
It's a process. I mean, it's a shame that we're 30 years later and that's all that we've gotten at least, but it's probably just the case that that could have been from that particular source. Mm -hmm. And you might have gone, I might've gone to somebody else and they would have been even more optimistic than that, but it's still progress. Don't get me wrong. It's just, yeah, could be better. And if it specifically focuses on what is it that you can do with the card, the, the cards you've been dealt and you might have you might have the ace of spades, but you just got to know where to play it. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that analogy. That's fantastic. So tell us a little bit about school growing up. What was that like for you? Growing up in elementary school was pretty good. Uh, honestly, that was the first um, mainstream school that I've been a part of. And I was in the general education classroom um, by the time I got to about fifth grade. I was in a self-contained classroom at the age of seven when I first transferred into elementary school. And the programming there was mostly based on a criterion reference um, chart where specific goals that you had, such as didn't talk out of turn or completed all assignments, followed all directions that were given, was rated on a scale or during particular intervals of the day. The second remember that. I remember bringing home that chart, asking dad, how did you do today on a scale of zero to 100 and seeing if I could beat him. <laughs> and I remember one time he said 99, I'm like 100. Booyah. <laughs> so, um, so there was a mixture between this skill-based um, competency for with the with target skills and methods that at that time weren't were used commonly but wouldn't be allowed today or even possibly illegal. So <laughs> there was a confinement timeout room that you had to go to if you continue to um, if you continue to break the rules. You go to the cool down desk first, and that was your warning. You would spend two minutes there and then come back out if you were ready. Sometimes you'd go there intentionally because you knew you needed it. But if you didn't cool down, you continued to break the rules, you go into a closed room mm-hmm. with just one door, which I didn't even realize at that time. And not even until I was about 31 or 32 or so, somebody came from a school district to talk to us at one of the four-year placements I had and said, this isn't even allowed anymore. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was done to me. So mm. it took me about a week to get over that. Yeah, you have to kind of, you got to process through some of that trauma, even if you haven't recognized it, once you're aware of it, that doesn't go away. Like you literally have to go process through that. I completely get that. Yeah. That's really the only major thing about um, elementary school that was, um, that I can think back was problematic um, because in general, the teachers were very well-intentioned and they had a goal and they saw progress over those three years. Middle school was much different, and I've spoken to a lot of parents and even a lot of peers where they say, elementary school was great, and then middle school turned around and kicked me in the butt. Mm. I didn't really have the same history and, and the cred even that I had in elementary school because I was a spelling bee champion for two yeah. years running, and nobody had ever won from fourth grade, nobody had ever won twice, and then I go into sixth grade, and so people meet me that don't know anything about me and they assume the worst or they assume that he's weird or, well, words that I wouldn't say in this podcast <laughs> on today. But so 
those two years until about eighth grade when um, my parents and my some of the teachers finally found out what was really going on, the way I was being treated, were quite difficult, but not something that I really even was aware of how to deal with. I this a part of me was like, no, the body will tell you no when it doesn't want to be treated a certain way. But mm-hmm. if there's nobody to hear it, it's not like it's going to make too much of a difference. So interesting. Yeah. But then around at the end of middle school is when I finally learned that I was autistic and it made sense of a lot of things, but it didn't really undo what had already been done. And that, yeah. um, that had to be dealt with a lot later in life. High school was significantly worse. Um, and so eventually I was uh, pulled out of high school and put through homebound because it was a much safer environment. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that program's still around because it was really effective for me. And the two teachers that um, came to my house to bring the assignments that I needed to complete in classes were really helpful in understanding. We even had our own uh, catchphrases. Um, one of my teacher's favorite phrases was unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> I did something that um, was either out of line or out of character or wasn't necessary, um, where I went over the top, she would say that. Oh, and then. Cute. There were particular activities that we always liked to do when they came over um, after the work was done that we just had fun with. So I'd go to the local Asian market and bring home a different, like, exotic tropical fruit every time if I could. I love that. And we'd play um, web version of Deal or No Deal, which was, like, a show I was obsessed <laughs> with at that time. Yeah. So, but once you finally get people that go along with your interests and can take the time to get to know you and make that a part of your relationship. Um, you, you really do grow. And yeah. I'm very thankful for that because it was a, a gesture of good faith in me that I really needed at that time. Yeah. Sounds like it. Did you, did your parents travel a lot or what did what was that like for your childhood? What was your like family life? You Were they, my parents were workers. They were always gone and I was either a latchkey kid or a lot of people don't know this, but I lived with my, my parents are divorced. So I lived with my dad in high school and he was in the military. So he would go away for months at a time and I would live with house sitters. So <laughs> I was the one who lived with strangers in my <laughs> teenage years. Strange. Oh, look at that <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm Okay. <laughs> It'll happen sometimes, particularly if somebody's very resilient. I guess um, so. Yeah, that is so true. So my dad works pretty much full time at mm-hmm. NASA. He's been there since pretty much he moved down here. Um, almost 40 years now that wow. he's worked there. So um, like Nam is a freelance musician and she's had some bigger gigs over the years, but most of the time she's played with uh, symphonies as a mm-hmm. classical double bassist. Um, Ooh. She is an instrument that has dated back to the Civil War. So she's Amazing. been using it for a long time. Um, <laughs> I don't think she'll ever want to get rid of it. Um, but she does a very challenge do electric bass occasionally. So and now mostly she plays at churches. Um, so they'll book her for more extended periods of time for that or for a musical performance where she'll be away most nights every day for a week and a half or so. But that's uh, sporadic. The life of a musician is like that. Sure. So most of my home life was with my mom. 
that's good. Well, and it sounds like you're close. I mean, you're, or you're, you know, at least cordial with them or so they supported you. It doesn't, you haven't brought up any, you know, horrible parenting experiences. So that's a good thing. It's always nice when, you know, you have that come that trust safety at home or whatever to, to rely on. So I had some good dogs back in the day. <laughs> reliable old dogs, right? <laughs> I'll always take care of you. Always. Oh, that's so we don't take care of them. They take care of you. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the truth? Well, and you know, that's so funny. You said that too, because I was just, well, I was just watching a show and it was about, um, and a gentleman with gown syndrome and another guy and <laughs> some strange Netflix show. I don't even know, but in, in the sense that it's so beautiful that Sometimes we think we're, we come across someone in our life or something and we're like, oh, we're, we're helping them or we're saving them. And in real truth, they're saving us and helping Mm -hmm. us and, you know, helping when we look back at the situation, it's, it's amazing. And I would say that for my son, my son really helped me to understand because that was my first experience with autism in my life. And it was definitely um, like extraordinary. Like I, I could never wrap my mind around how he th- could think or how he could absorb so much information. And he was speaking like five languages um, at the age of five or six. And it was just a constant intake of all of this information and periodic tables and maps and alphabets and <laughs> maps, like you know? You. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a lot like you. Tell me again um, how you think we're secretly related. Yeah, right? <laughs> Without telling me you're secretly related. No. I love it. I love it. No, and I love your sense of humor. You have such a great sense of humor too. So we got past high school. Now, what does it look like for you in that transition period? What did that look like for you? In terms of going to college? Yeah, from moving from high school to college and how um, I hear mostly that it's thousand times better when people get into college, but that's not always everyone's experience, obviously. So how was that for you? Being that I currently uh, work at a community college, yeah. I think <laughs> that there's a difference sometimes and that people enjoy college more on some occasions. And sometimes it's just so much different. A lot of times the challenge is somebody learning to take responsibility for all their stuff mm-hmm. when they didn't have to do that before. Yeah. And if you're getting somebody who just came into college, they're they're having to do this for the first time. And you don't often know what the heck they're doing. (laughs) Yeah. In my case, though, I was always an independent worker because, like, what else did I do with my time? But um, other than all of the uh, things that I would do for fun, I could spend pretty much as much time as I wanted doing my work. And I would make sure I get it done. And I was very studious in that regard. So I didn't find it too difficult to transition to doing things on my own. I just needed to learn how to use planners and write schedules and do that a little bit more than I used to. Yeah. And also, even though there's not going to be a, as much um, slack cut to a college student and they expect you to be an adult. And there were a few times when I did have to learn that the hard way. It wasn't going to be me just assuming I could get away with stuff. But generally, though, being around adults 
and being in a classroom setting with other people. And I also just lucked out with the professors that I got because they were pretty much all good, if not excellent or amazing at the absolute best, that I did feel like I had a place um, and I grew from every single semester. And to some extent, that's how we end up growing as people. And that's how we teach our um, autistic um, loved ones how to socialize. Is you just put them out in front of people and they do it. They make a whole bunch of mistakes, but who doesn't? So yeah. Um, I and that. I just continue to get people to t- telling me that I just improved every year and how sociable I was and how better, how much better I could hold conversation how more focused I was on the other person. Mm-hmm. And I can't point to a specific thing that really impacted that, except much later in life, um, in the, like 2021, when my, the focus of my practice in behavior analysis really shifted. And I could definitely go into that if we're going into my uh, professional side. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about that next. Like, that's exciting that you were able to take something that not only do you, can you gain, you know, knowledge through a textbook, but you have lived experience, which is something that um, not every therapist especially can take with them into situations to give that individual or client the best nurtured care that they can um, with so much more in mind. Yeah. That's something I always envisioned for me, for me mm-hmm. um, going into a field where people with, uh, with autistic people were very valued and um, not just as the clients, but as the practitioners, hopefully. Yeah. I was not aware of how many people out there are autistic that are doing this. I just felt yeah, oh, yeah. It's extremely rare. So I must be really special. And to be fair, I still am. Yes, special, absolutely. So everybody. So, um, <laughs> But at that time, I didn't know anybody else. So um, I ended up happening upon behavior analysis as a career when I went through my undergraduate courses in Mm. psychology at University of Houston, Clear Lake, where um, it was not very far from where I grew up. So it was convenient, but it was also really fortunate. Um, So the one course that really changed everything was the uh, learning uh, course, the introduction to the principles of behavior analysis. And I just found that it was very easy for me to grasp them because it's based a lot on rules and concrete applications of behavior science to change behavior in measurable ways. And it was data focused. I was generally very good at data focused, being data focused. Mm -hmm. And I just saw that this was something that I really liked, but then I was sitting in a research and practice class. I guess um, my professor had invited me to go to it. And then I met, (laughs) he's, he had a pretty large head and he was, he had big glasses and bald. And I will never forget his face and the way he approached me because he had been tipped off by my professor that was probably autistic, but she didn't know. So she was just guessing. <laughs> I didn't find that out until much, much later because I thought <laughs> that she already would have known. Um, so he approached me with an offer to join a research study held out of the clinic that was on site at the campus. Um, and it was a study that nobody had ever really done before. Can we teach autistic adults 
to be behavior tests. Mm. How will that work? And I thought, oh, this is absolutely perfect. Um, and that was the third time that this professor had tried to get in touch with me. So at this point, I'm like, got it. You need to listen to this. So, and I found that I just went, uh, it just went so well with the way that my brain operated. When I first was put in the room with a, with another autistic person that didn't really have a lot of language, like, this is not what I'm used to. I'm used to autistic people being fully functional in the way that I understood it at the time and the, being able to hold conversations like I did. So it was so much different. And it was a little frustrating at first to not be able to communicate on the same level. But then I found the language that uh, allowed me to let down my preconceptions and see, like, you can connect, even if it's not in the way that you would normally have expected. Mm-hmm. And it was like magic how quickly I could get... Uh, I could get a response out of this girl. And what, what did you, how did you find that? What type of communication did you find worked best? Mostly in this case, a uh, verbal, uh, verbal vocal communication worked in this instance, but we were just one of their respondent instructions as well. So yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think we had any uh, non-speakers in that group. Okay. So yeah. So that's just so made it interesting. Easier. Absolutely. Well, and even, you know, it's it's great. I, not many people would understand this. This is something I can tell you and you can understand. And it's like, finally, right. You have finally someone that understands me. Um, But DJ, um, he was not speaking until he was about four and a half and that he had been reading for two and a half years already. So when he started speaking, it was just a bounty of words just coming out. And still today, like I said, he was uh, memorizing languages so, so early on, but he is 13. And if I brought him in here right now, he wouldn't be able to have a conversation with us. That's still something that is not on his repertoire. He is not, um, those are his challenges still are in those communication and that understanding any types of social um, cues and understanding. So Oh, it's so hard to explain to someone. Yes, he's memory. He can, you know, say couch in 103 languages, but <laughs> <laughs> sorry, he can't have this English conversation with you. And so if people, <clears throat> they don't, they don't understand that and communication and speaking uh, are so vastly different from one another. <sighs> so, so different. All speaking is communication, but not all communication is speaking. Yes, exactly, exactly. And what a profound um, perspective for you to be able to have to bring. And I'm sure that the families that you have encountered and have worked with have been, well, I mean, tell us what it's like, I guess. I mean, I, I can't make any assumptions. <laughs> Uh, what do you mean? Well, tell us what? So what did, no, what did the, the like the parents of the? Yeah, what have they? Um, what am I trying to say here? I might have to go back and and cut this part so I don't sound like I can't talk. When you go into a, with work with a new client and they also understand that you're autistic, how much more of a sense of like comfortability or understanding do they have for you? 
That was definitely something I was looking forward to when I um, explored my identity more and began to form closer relationships with parents because I worked yeah. at the same place for four years. And I would say four or five of the parents eventually knew. Um, some of them were suspecting before I actually told them. But <laughs> um, then one time I got in the local newspaper and everybody knew. But <laughs> um, So... But I would disclose based on whether I felt it would advance our relationship. And I felt like it would yeah. be something that they, if they already knew me well enough and I thought, okay, so seeing this will inspire them. There are some parents where it's like, this isn't really going to do a whole lot because they're not really that into the autism parent life or they don't necessarily think like me on the same level. Mm -hmm. But there were times when I would tell, and it did seem to increase their respect for me and mm -hmm. their understanding of my point of view. Good. There was one time that was most recent, the last uh, client I ever worked with uh, as an RBT before I obtained my BCABA certification just recently, where I was incorporating my knowledge of lived experience from almost the get-go. And I remember the moment when I decided to because... This particular um, child was going from place to place and trying to touch walls because of the sensory input and going back and back and forth a lot, not really staying on the same path when we would ask him to move from one place to the other. And I could see like that being very functional for him. So that's when I came forward. And I knew by this time that it was very safe for that uh, to happen, even though I didn't know this particular parent too well. But also because I was very high, much affirmed by everybody that I worked with in this setting. Mm -hmm. um, all of the staff knew and all of them uh, made sure to include my point of view. And I'd established myself as an authority on that early on. That. But in this case, I could see the difference this made because mom was coming from a school system where mm -hmm. the teachers and the administrative staff were not very cooperative with giving him what he needed. And he had heard some things about ABA that were concerning to her. Like, is this going to be the same thing all over again? And what we did turned that impression around. And me including my knowledge of what I was expecting to see from him and then what I did, and I ended up being right about some predictions as well, it built trust. It's like this person knows yeah. what's going on. It's not like he understands him in the same way that if you uh, talk about something uh, personal with somebody or frustrating and they say, I understand, because you don't, mm. you just understand <laughs> the general mindset more so than the exact thing that somebody's going through. Yes. And I always qualify it that way. But in this case, I could get a sense of what was happening in a way that allowed me to recommend things that nobody else would have. I still remember one particular instance where we had a list of rules written out because he was fully verbal. He could read, he could have a conversation about most things. He could read whatever you wrote. And the first rule that we had written out was sit on the orange pad. Well, for how to conduct himself in the uh, classroom. Well, guess where this orange pad was? It was not in the room we were in. It was completely down the hall. So when little Mr. Brain who thinks very literally and sees the word sit on the orange pad, realizes there is no orange pad in the room. That's what he does. <laughs> yep. Getting out of here. Where's the orange pad? I'm like, stop guys. 
as soon as he finished saying the sentence to him, I'm like, this is going to go down. Yeah. And I know exactly why. So we brought him in there and said, okay, I understand why you think that way. Let me explain a little more. Let me clarify this. This only replies when you're in the classroom. And when we have it, um, have that orange pad around. Yeah. So we saw, I saw even more buy-in from my uh, fellow staff members when that happened. Um, I think mom could tell that I was keeping an eye out actively. Yeah. Because, and, and I would have done that specifically. <laughs> and over time, we just, I just continued to be involved in more conversations. I helped write part of his final discharge report where I listed out things like that as recommendations for how to work with this um, child in the future for anybody else who was going to read it. Mm-hmm. And I even told the student at the very end, I said, hey, you know, you're special, you're different and make hope that you understand that that's a good thing. He already knew mm-hmm. what autism was. Yeah. And I just reassured him that that's a good thing. And I felt like I could even give this little kid an example too. I love that. That's so important too, to build those trusting relationships with your client. I'm not a therapist. I'm just coming from a, a mom's point of view on that, building a relationship with my child in a trust relationship. I mean, the moment that I see that, there is a lack of understanding or cognitive going on, I have to be able to step in and be his protection, if you will, in those moments where he doesn't have the sense to do it for himself. But in the sense that there's so much literalness, I just love that you said that because there was um, a little, there was a time where it was when they were really little, our kids are two years apart, 13 and 11, but when they were like two and four or something, and there was a chair outside, like a little wicker chair, a little child's chair. And we said to our daughter, who's the artist, you know, here's some paint, go paint the chair, just paint all over it, do what you want, have a great time. Mm -hmm. But when her brother heard the words, paint the chair, he frantically ran beside her to replicate every color in every spot on another piece of something to paint that chair exactly how she was painting it. And we, when we realized how intently he had had taken that and that he was not having fun at all, like he was stressed out. He was, she was going crazy, slapping colors here and there, and he couldn't keep up with it. And it was making him so upset. And we were like, you guys are doing an art project. You're having fun. Why are you getting upset? And then we realized what we had said that that's exactly what he was doing, but he was, it was so little literal for him that, yeah, we have to be so careful with um, and I'm sure you help parents understand this. So careful with our language. Yes. In, mm-hmm. in communication and in relationships with people. Yeah. And everybody's going to take things differently as a baseline or the way that their brain helps them to process speech. But I could absolutely see that happening. <laughs> it's a let's paint the chair mean paint a picture of a chair or paint the actual chair. Yep. <laughs> and I'd love to play with that ambiguity and just in general, the sense of ambiguity and what I find funny because yeah. 
ambiguity or double meanings is just a naturally funny thing in comedy. So yes, yes. That allows me to grasp that much easier than most people. Or so uh, I did actually share with you the, uh, the uh, Facebook page that I run where I point out stuff like this in the environment. (laughs) The very first post that I made was I went to a doctor's office and the, there was a sign on the door that said wheelchair restroom in the back. Like, Wheelchairs need to use the restroom? What the? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's funny when people don't recognize those things and they just put them out there. And it takes us to come along and notice them, to point them out, to say, you sound ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is so true. It's yeah. uh, called the Aspie Mind, which is a yes. hashtag. It's a hashtag I was using even before I made it a page. And then eventually I decided this was a popular enough concept because uh-huh. people were hashtagging it that I decided to make that page. Fantastic. To be, to be silly, but also to bring awareness of the of the way that we conceive of the world. Yeah. And that's why I might gravitate towards comedians that do that style of humor. Yeah, as definitely. Well. Um, that's great. What are some of your other interests? I, you know, I told our audience that I follow you and your interests, but that they don't know what they are. So <laughs> tell us what some of your interests are and uh, your life now and what you like to do. Well, I would say my biggest hobby and even my second job on occasion, um, at least it feels like it with the amount of time I put into it is to cook. Mm-hmm. And Love you'll that. be able to see just over here that I have a kitchen that's stocked with almost everything you could imagine within the bounds of the uh, of the cabinets um, <laughs> and I've been I've been fascinated with uh, cooking since I was a kid because my parents mm-hmm. raised me with a diverse uh, palate they would bring in uh, dishes that they tried at restaurants in maybe Chinatown um, when they were younger when they were younger and they first moved here so I got familiar with um, Asian and Vietnamese um, some some Chinese dishes, particularly those, um, some Greek, um, Middle Eastern foods as well. So I grew to be naturally curious. And the church that I've been to since I grew up had a multicultural festival. And every January at the very last week of the month, I think, and people would come with native garb and um, artifacts cool. from their home countries of origin, and that would number the over 20 of them. So you had Nigeria and Ghana and Indonesia and the Philippines. And uh, let's see, you'd even have like France or some of the more well-known countries where you might have something like a crepe. But at the like, Ghanaian, Ghanaian and Nigerian booths, they had these rice and beans and stewed meats and plantains and things that I've never really forgotten. And the way that the wow. people served it with a whole lot of love and excitement and they just genuinely cared for you. Um, I never forgot that. And so I just look forward to going to this um, booth, these booths every single year. I was like, I I would wait six months to go to it. That's so cool. I was like two weeks away from this festival. (laughs) So it was just naturally something that I enjoyed, but I mostly ended up either going out to eat or having it cooked at home until I moved out and lived on my own. I've been living on my own for the last 10 years. So I've Great. gotten a lot That's of time to learn. Wondering when the day is going to be like, yeah, I'll be 46 by the time I've lived on my own as long as I have with uh, my parents. Isn't that interesting, <laughs> um, right? 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so over that time, I've just grown in my ability to make a lot of different um, di- different types of dishes and use a lot of different ingredients. And cool. I just actively seek out new adventures and try to cook new countries every so often. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm over 120 of them right now. Wow. So, That's amazing. But, not so hard when you're in Houston, when you can get almost anything you want. But Yeah, that's really maybe, cool. Maybe not in Utah. I don't know. Uh, probably a little bit more international than Salt Lake City. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say it's it's pretty good. It's pretty diverse. But um, my family, personally, not so much. We need some, some work in that area. <laughs> well, this is great. This has led us into the next part of where I really wanted to, you know, kind of explore. And that is with your experience with the Global Autism Project and your travels and things. And I know we're well into this conversation, but that's okay. We have all the time in the world. So tell us a little bit about those experiences and, and, you know, what that changed or, you know, how you grew from that. Well, um, for about two years, their emails were sitting in my uh, inbox, and I didn't really know how I signed up for them. But I, <laughs> I saw them talk about um, activities that they were doing or trip. I don't think they mentioned trips they were running, but it just might have seemed like another one of the autism organizations that I was familiar with. But then when I happened upon an advertisement on Facebook, and they said, oh, you could travel the world and do um, and work with autistic people. And I, thought that was pretty neat. And I had just come back from an international trip a few months before. And I really loved putting the time into um, plan absolutely everything and go uh, all to all the non-touristy places that I could (laughs) and immerse myself in the uh, language and the culture. So most of my time was spent in France and I learned to speak French at a pretty good level in just a few months. So I knew that I was capable of investing the amount of time and energy I needed in order to really soak a country in. Yeah. And this time I thought, well, why don't we, maybe I could do this again, but also combine that with my love for what I'm doing. And I wasn't really working much at the time. I just started a new position that was very much part-time. So I had the freedom to do that if I wanted. And I just signed up and put some information uh, off to the side in the Dropbox. They didn't know my parents had seen it. I planned to tell them only when I got accepted, but they found out before that. So <laughs> uh, I ended up getting uh, invited to go to the Prague, Czechia, um, shortening yeah. for Czech Republic. Um, and that happened in summer of 2019. Wow. And of course, I did the uh, the thing that was in vogue for me at the time where I completely immersed myself in that culture as well. It's really to the detriment of a lot of other things in my life because I'm <laughs> obsessed with it that I pretty much lost track of other things. Or, um, but I did become at least capable enough in the language and in the uh, understanding of the uh, local food and perhaps mm. some of the customs to be able to make my way around because, but. And it really helped some of the team members as well because nobody else had picked up on it. So, and what language I, did you speak there? Czech. Okay, so, I wasn't sure if that was what they. Wow, that's amazing. So, Global Autism Project. For those that haven't heard of it, they're a worldwide 
based organization, but they come from New York City originally. And they started when their CEO, Molly, um, moved to Ghana with a family that she was working with at the time um, because they were moving back home and they they asked her to come with her. And and her 20 early 20 year old self decided to do it and learned that there was a great need for international autism services everywhere. And that was 20 years ago. And look where we are now. Amazing. Um, there's over 10 countries that they work in. Um, only almost 20 that they have worked in or and th- throughout the life of the organization. So at that time that I traveled, this uh, the organization was mostly focused on directly helping staff and owners within a partner center. Mm-hmm. And so, even though I'd had four years of experience in a partner in a center before, I was not a BCBA like a lot of the other people there were. So I didn't have as much to contribute on the clinical front. What I contributed was mostly that I understood how to get around a foreign this particular country that <laughs> can translate, but also that I was autistic, and yes. that ended up becoming. One of the themes of the talk that I was asked to give when I was in Czechia. So, and I called that um, a world without borders to represent the fact that I was crossing a lot of borders by being the only autistic on the trip and the only person that had studied the language and the culture of this extreme and feeling like I was a bridge between two worlds in more way than one and seeing that there are some barriers to inclusion Um, and seeing perhaps in another country where the understanding and knowledge and awareness and acceptance of autism were not as strong. And I made the structure to talk around those themes where these are the four tiers of what we now want, what we used to call autism awareness, but now it's more like acceptance. Mm-hmm. But acceptance is not something you get to overnight. You first have to start with, you got to know what it is in the first place, yeah. which in Czech, Czechia is not that common. Exactly. Um, unfortunately, the case for most countries around the world. Um, yeah. That's so interesting. My theme was mostly around how do we get from one tier to the next. And then what, when we get to that final tier, that's where we want to be as a society, not just as we relate to the marginalization of autistic people, but everybody. Mm -hmm. If we accept somebody for who they are, then we can cross any kind of border. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And that's fascinating too. And um, are you planning on taking more trips in the future? We'll see. Um, I have a lot going on right now, so that could happen in the future. I just uh, had my second one two months ago. Um, so, and that was a completely different experience than yeah, the first one. Yeah, tell us one. about that. Um, so, I was one of the last trips under the old model of Global Autism Project and their subdivision skill core, which is the travel um, portion of what they did. And that was pretty much all that they did at the time. So, for a long time, um, Global Autism Project did only international travel. And then guess what happens in March 2020 when you can't do international travel and that's all of your income? Yeah. Not that much. So 
in order to survive, they had to reorganize into uh, and start doing more leadership training for companies and businesses. And even if they weren't always autism related, but usually they were. And then by the time that they were able to start international travel again in 22, the model was changing a little bit, but it fully reorganized itself into what it is now. And I was one of the 10 or so people that experienced this new model. And I was really hesitant to go back and do a second trip. Um, and it took me a good deal of convincing and some pursuit on the part of their um, tra- director of training and some incentives to try to go on it. And <laughs> I kept going back and forth between whether to do it once I heard about it. And after about two weeks, I decided, you know what? Let's just do it. Because it really seems like um, stars are aligning that this is something that I'm meant to do. And like maybe it actually would get help facilitate the goals I wanted to achieve in 23 instead of getting in the way of them. And I had to fundraise for this one like I did the first one, except I had to raise a little bit more money and in only a few months, a few weeks mm, instead of a wow. few months. So I had to double down really hard to make this trip. But then when I got there, it was a complete 180. Like I truly felt from the very beginning, like I was included in every part of the process. Mm-hmm. I was the first team member to arrive, um, our CEO and our director of outreach, um, just sat with me planning how we're going to bring everybody into the in from the airport into the hotel. Yeah. How is this going to go? What role are you going to have? And it's going to be quite a bit because you're the only self-advocate. And <laughs> we need you um, to do certain things for us to make this a really amazing trip. And from the beginning, that inclusion was extremely present and I just gave it everything that I have and it was utterly overwhelming and I'm still trying to process some of that today. Yeah. Um, but this one was in uh, Nairobi in our partner center in uh, Kenya, but because of our refurbishing our model, we only spend a couple of days in the center itself called Kaizora. Um, <laughs> a lot of the time we were spent, we spent organizing events like a corporate dinner with employers who were looking to hire autistic people and even a dinner with self-advocates in the local community and their parents to get some visibility and put their story in front of other people. Mm. And we went to a coffee roaster in Athi River in about an hour away from Nairobi that actually employed some of these autistic people. And some people we may have actually met. I don't think, I don't remember. No. Which gave me a, uh, gave all of us a lot of ideas for things to do when we got home. And in fact, I recently discovered a coffee shop around here, Biddy and Bows, that all of their staff have disabilities. Oh. I thought this is exactly what we've been doing. Yeah. <laughs> so the way that this could really change the fabric of a, of society is immense. I and that. I truly also felt that whenever I travel to another country, whether it's with Global Autism Project or something else, like I make the time to really get to know where I'm at. And I really wanted to experience Africa in a way that was open-minded and like wanted to get to know the people and what the culture was actually like, because we have a lot of misunderstandings about what Africa is like. Yeah, definitely. I'm really proud of you for that, though. 
I mean, not like I'm your mom or anything, but I'm so proud of you <laughs> from peer to peer. It's I'm proud of you for putting yourself, you know, in that mind frame. I think that your intentions and your like um, message that you, the, you know, aura that you have is just so lovely. Um, it's so inspiring. And I, I hope that other people truly see how much value you have because you really are just making huge, huge changes for society, for the future. Um, and for thousands, if not millions of people who may be affected or, uh, you know, enhanced, if you will, by the idea that once we start giving people the chance to be seen and heard and affirmed and uplifted, we can start building a real, true, like global society that really is inclusive and interactive and engaged with one another. It's something that I've always had wanted in my life. And in fact, sometimes when I feel deeply affirmed or included in something, it's extremely emotional. And I'm the crybaby. I could break down and cry, <laughs> or I could completely freeze up with how emotional I am and not be able to express it for a long time because yeah. there we all experience marginalization at least once in our lives and for something that is potentially really near and dear to us. And when we go out into the world and live authentically, we're going to still experience that. And it doesn't matter who we are. Like, it, yeah, unless you put yourself out there uh, or never put yourself out there at all, you're mm. not going to experience any of that. But what kind of life is that actually? And yeah. this is similar to the way that I approach the concept of what is affirming because we talk about neurodiversity affirming care in um, behavior analysis and a new movement towards making sure the personhood of the client is being seen and heard and respected and even um, even nurtured by what we're doing um, the goal of ABA that we the goal of ABA shouldn't just be about making a scientific behavior change it's part of it but if that's all you're doing, then you might be missing out on the chance to really help them grow as a person. And maybe the way that you're teaching is effective on a pure database standpoint, but it might be damaging in the long run. And I'd like to go into that if we have the time. Please. We have as much time as we want. If I have to break this into two parts, I will. <laughs> good. Okay. All right. Well, good. I got another couple pages of stuff. Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> I love we it. We should... Define what I mean by affirming in this context and yeah. what is neurodiversity affirming. It's still being defined officially and it's, it's gaining a lot of traction as a movement in behavior analysis. But it should it should have traction in all autism services, but it's particularly important here where we have a history of not being very affirming. Um, so I personally have chosen to define neurodiversity affirming procedures as a set of procedures applied to the science of behavior and the way it's taught and an overall mindset, and they have to go together, that, that proceed from the a priori based assumptions that the identity of the autistic, and we might just say neurodivergent in this case, that identity that they have is a real measurable thing and that they have 
dignity and value because of their humanity, but also because of the neurodiversity. Everything else is based on that. And it, you can't have neurodiversity affirming care if you don't have either of those, mm -hmm. which means there are some implications to that. So we first have to know that the identity is real in the first place to be able to affirm it. And if we're, if it's not real, then what we're doing isn't really going to be helpful at the absolute best. We can say, we can verify a human being is the member of Homo sapiens, not anything else. And if we treat them like any other species, um, then it's not going to work with the way that they're designed. And it might also hurt or demean or debase them. You say, oh, we treat somebody like a dog. Well, that's not a good thing. Yeah. So we don't want to do that. And it's very important that we know who it is that we're working with and understand what the implication of that is. Otherwise, we're going to get it wrong. Mm. Now, where this becomes more challenging is when somebody does what we call masking. And it'd be good to introduce that subject. Um, masking being anything that we do to either hide or to conceal or to pretend is not real, mm -hmm. the true self that we are. And sometimes that might be a good idea. And isolated instances of masking, maybe I don't always tell everybody when I first meet them, I'm autistic. But, or maybe if I'm having a social challenge, I might tell somebody, I don't understand this social rule versus I'm autistic and I don't understand this rule. It might be a good idea in some instances. As a way of life, it doesn't work because we're just naturally different than other people. And if we pretend that we're neurotypical or even convince ourselves that or even try to convince other people that we are, we're not really doing us a, 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 a good service. Absolutely. And masking is what creates a false identity for other people. And if we affirm that it sounds affirming on the surface because we're agreeing with the way they're defining or presenting themselves, but we're actually disaffirming who they actually are and potentially doing them harm. Now, how do we determine the autism? Two sources of evidence, diagnostic. You got a piece of paper in front of you from a psychologist or psychiatrist or whoever's diagnosing you, I'm guessing just those, that says autism spectrum disorder or whatever it is that's going to be used in that particular milieu. Then you have the behavioral evidence, which is going to tie together with it because that's partially how you do the diagnosis. But also okay. you said um, the, you, you got partially diagnosed or at least reaffirmed in it through a brain scan, right? Yes. Huh. You can use that. There's evidence there. That's objective. Yes. So there are values in our field of empiricism, where you prefer things that you can see or measure above other things as a general rule, doesn't mean that things you can see or measure are the only sources of evidence, but you should assume that in general, as well as a principle called parsimony, where you learn about the, you use the simplest explanation you can get. Now, how that works is the diagnostic and behavioral evidence is pretty objective, if not completely, it's the best that you got. Now, if somebody is masking or they're acting in the neurotypical fashion, maybe they're neurotypical. That's possible. But if you apply the principle of parsimony to that and say, what's the simplest explanation for that? That's the simplest explanation in the vacuum. But if you got autism spectrum disorder on a sheet of paper, you've got the classic behaviors in there. That's evidence against the theory that they're neurotypical. 
which means you have to think a little bit deeper. We have to go to the next simplest explanation, which is they are, and maybe they're saying, I'm normal. No, I'm not autistic. Don't call me that. But that's not actually an accurate or valid expression of who they actually are. And that's very often the case in people that have some type of trauma or shame or negative impression of who they actually are underneath. And that's usually what's driving masking, particularly when it becomes habitual. And we can show that that happens if we look deeper. We may not be able to tell it right now, but we can see that other explanations for the phenomenon of masking are insufficient. We can show that And we do also know from a lot of evidence about how trauma works that it can influence somebody's behavior in that way. Mm -hmm. If we don't do that due diligence and we just affirm the neurotypical self that they're projecting out to the world, and if they ask us, oh, well, um, or say, I'm neurotypical, I want you to to just pretend that's the case, and we go along with it, what are we doing? Are we really helping them? Maybe we're helping them avoid pain in the short term. But really, what we should be doing is minimizing the effects of pain rather than minimizing pain itself. Because that self-identity is still going. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. That that self-identity piece, though, is so that's so tricky because we in like what you're saying, want to give all the affirming and all of that. However, if it's to the endangerment or the, like you said, can be non-beneficial to someone in, because they're in like this masking projection, then I think it's totally best to, and it's that, oh my gosh, my brain just like light bulb moment. And in, oh my, (laughs) don't you love it when that happens? And in the moments that, um, I'm so sorry that I bring this back, but that my child is, was being, um, characters in like, you know, for maybe sometime he was Sonic the Hedgehog and everyone had to call him Sonic and everyone around him had to be the character. He, he wouldn't reply or respond or interact with you. Like I was Tails, the fox, you know, and I had to be, or I couldn't interact with him. I couldn't interact with Sonic unless I was Tails. And so in, but in those moments, and I remember having a conversation um, when he was a little bit older about him being Garfield and me saying, you know, Garfield is, is not a person, you know, it's this idea and this, this adventure that you're having, but it's not this real identity. He never, ever dressed up or was a character again after that. And it kind of hurts in a way that like, did I take this away from him? Did I harm him and not being able to be expressive in those things? But in the same way, like you're saying, he can't go into get a job and tell the boss, Hey, my name is Sonic and you're knuckles and we're buddies and let's go. Right. <laughs> you have to tell him Sonic. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So yeah, that's just not going to work. I mean, in yeah. in the context of that play game, yeah, that's fine. And yeah. it's sad that it turned out that way because yeah. I think maybe at that time it's hard to delineate the difference between this is a fantasy that I'm living in right now. And I understand that. And sure, that's fun. But if you try to make that into the reality of who you are and project it that way to the world and make other people believe it too – that's not going to fly. That's going to hurt you. Yeah. 
So I'm so glad you um, said that. No, I mean, it makes me feel better that I like I did the right. We did the right thing by maybe letting him stay in that space for the time that he needed to be, but then also helping him understand that that wasn't a place that he was going to be able to take into every situation further right. in the future with uh-huh. him. So of course. very interesting. Yeah. It can be good to revisit that. I mean, people yeah. cosplay all the time and, sure. and act in movies and like that's a fantasy exactly. and role playing are part of our everyday lives and they're fun. Yeah. So. But once you leave that space of fantasy, then you leave it at the door. So yeah. now um, there's one more thing before I follow up on that point. There's one more um, part of that. Yes, um, there is going to be room for subjectivity in your uh, definition of identity because you have person first and identity first language. Those are two different ways of representing who you are or how you relate to the world, because that's part of identity is like how you function in relation to the world. Even if you don't identify as autistic, even though neurologically inside you are, I mean, you might live that way as well. Um, It's up to you really, whether you do personal or identity first, they describe subjective aspects of one thing that is objectively true that you're autistic. And I just said one of the two there, but I have to choose one. So (laughs) um, it's the way you perceive a specific truth. Put it that way, because there may be different ways to interpret it as long as you accept that the base truth is truth. Mm -hmm. You have the freedom to define something that's subjective, however you want, either as something that doesn't define who you are and it's person first. It's not all of you. Or it can be integral enough of a part of you that it's identity first. And in my case, I prefer the latter. Oh, that seems to be the majority opinion nowadays. Mm-hmm. I, you can even use the capital A for autistic. And I just learned that to do that recently. So I often do that now. Like um, it's the same reason that sometimes deaf people will use a capital D and deafness as an identity, mm-hmm. even though it's not generally been conceived of that way. I respect people's right to be called whichever of those they want because they're both true. Absolutely. Now, What's not true is that I'm not autistic. That's not true. You can use subjective descriptors only to refer to a subjective aspect of your identity. If the identity is entirely subjective, it can't stand on its own two feet as a concept. So then revisiting the concept of masking, if someone were to, let's say I'm coming to you as a client and you're a therapist in an alternate world. And you have the diagnosis in front of you that says autism spectrum disorder. And I say, no, I'm not autistic. Are you going to go along with that description of who I am? Or are you going to be a competent therapist and say, uh, oh, what can you tell me more about that? Or what would you say that? Or in behavioral terms, what's the function of that? We don't ignore it. We don't dismiss it as silly talk. We listen to it. It's very important. Oftentimes, there's a serious reason. So let me ask you now, what kind of questions would you ask me if I presented that way to you? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I don't want to be autistic, or I want to be normal, or I'm normal, or I'm not autistic. But give me a few. We'll see how close we get. No, you're asking me to ask you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm like, wait, are you? Um, okay. Let's see. Um, I'm not even sure how. What do I What do I even ask? Let's see. Um, like, yeah, I, I don't. 
I don't know. Now I'm um I'm in listening mode. So now I'm okay. not my in my brain's mode to think. Uh, no. No <laughs> give me some okay. examples. Let me give you some examples of things. Like why would somebody not want to be autistic or not referred to that oh, way? True. That would be a problem. Why would that be? Okay. Why why would somebody not want to be autistic? Probably because of a lot of stigmas. Um absolutely. Yeah. That could be one of them. They've heard stigmas. They've heard things about being autistic they don't like, maybe. Mm-hmm. Number two, maybe they've experienced things for being different or making social mm-hmm. mistakes, bullying or rejection or ostracism. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they feel weaker or lesser than other people and they trace mm-hmm. that to the autism. Also, there may be someone that they knew and really didn't like. Mm. or was hurt by who was autistic. And it's Mm. like, I don't want to be like that. So I don't want to be autistic. This I've seen this happen with people I know where they've been hurt by a parent of one or the other gender. And they grow to detest that gender in general, obviously by guilt by association. And maybe (laughs) if they're the same gender as that parent, they hate themselves. It does happen, unfortunately. And it leads them to want to change that or leave that behind or And it's something we barely much have to consider. Maybe there's trauma they're going to have to admit is real because maybe somebody took advantage of them for their disability. So they don't want to forget about it. Or they maybe just don't know how to move past it. So they're afraid to even go there because they know they can't get past that. Maybe they've heard myths. You can't live on your own. You can't hold down a job. You can't get married. You can't be a parent. You can't do these things if you're autistic. And they want them so badly. They'll refuse to accept that diagnosis or go looking for it Mm -hmm. so that they can feel like they can achieve that. That's not the issue. The issue is not the autism. The issue is that myth is there. Mm -hmm. And it's important that we get to the bottom of that. If we don't listen, we're going to miss that. Mm, That's so true. And listening is, is, is so important. And, not enough people, I think, you know, I really had to learn as a podcaster, even really active into it, listening and being able to then, I mean, sorry about that last, you know, part of our conversation where I couldn't come up with anything to say, but <laughs> for the most part, it's because I'm in that into it space that I can hear what you're saying, listen, you know, kind of take it in, process it. And then think of the output, obviously, or or other side of the conversation to have with you. And then what about the people who don't have that, you know, that processing part? How can we help them to accept their identity, their diagnosis, kind of like with our son? Like, what is the best way? I think, like you have said, through honesty is just that's authentically what, where it comes down to. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Of course. Um, There's been several stages of this psychological analysis where we are first understanding what autism is, what it means, what identity means, why somebody might hide it. And then maybe now we get to the process of the questions to ask and they don't come naturally because most people would probably do the same thing if they haven't been taught to ask the questions but like oh just go along with it whatever makes you happy yeah but it's not really what's making them happy 
What's going to make them happy is getting under the skin of those myths, those experiences, those traumas, those fears, and validating them, but also offering a way out. So let me give you an example from my clinical practice um, as an RBT near the very end of that time. A parent um, came in to see us who had two children, two daughters, one of them typically developing normal by all stretch of the imagination, the way that society uses it. And the other one, non-speaking autistic um, and having a big meltdown because she could not communicate. And when you're a parent and you see two kids with who by all accounts should be at the same level and one of them is very much not, it feels very frustrating. And in this mother's case, it brought her to tears because she just couldn't understand why life is like this. Mm-hmm. And parents are going to experience this too, just as much as the kids. Like, I wonder, I can see on the kid's face that she is extremely frustrated at not having the words, whether or not she's aware of her sister having them or not. I don't know, but it's possible. Yeah. Where we had to meet her was to say, one, um, you have some fears about how is the world going to treat her? And those are going to be the same fears that the kids are going to have. How is the world going to treat me? Mm-hmm. Yes. She's different. She's going to have some challenges. They're going to be different. She's more vulnerable, perhaps, because of her um, her current state and her available communicating. And it is true that she may go out into the world and experience ostracism in ways that that typically developing speakers might not. And the other important thing about that is that everybody is different. Everybody's got what we might call a disability in the sense of something that they can't do. And we're all afraid of that, but we go out and live the best life that we possibly can. But we also have people in our lives that do affirm us for exactly who we are, work with us at the level that we're at. And the more of that we have in our lives, the less the people that oppose us mean to us. If you have a thousand people that love you, then that one angry commenter on the internet, that one parent that looks at you with the dirty eyes and says, why can't you control our kid, your kid might hurt a little bit at the absolute worst, but it's not going to phase you the way that it did before, because you have a basic idea of who you are and what value you have either as the parent or as the uh, child. And that is all the best that we can do. Yeah. But it's through understanding our value and the value of life itself and the gift that it is that we're able to get through the fact that it's full of suffering. Mm, That is so true, isn't it? Mm. And it's really how we move through it and how we react to it and how we, as parents, I guess, be good examples, as therapists, be good teachers, as teachers, be good teachers, right? Um, and as individuals, just do our best to, I think, in that one with with Seisha, I think that she had mentioned, be 1% better than the day before. 1%. You don't have to shoot for so much all the time. But if you can 1% yourself every day, then you're always making progress. And I think that that's so valuable and can be easily measured that way. Yeah, definitely. Oh my gosh. You absolutely. 
you absolutely uh, can feel good about yourself when you're measuring your progress and you let your wins stack up, like she was saying. Yeah, um, definitely. This has been such a fantastic conversation. I'm so glad that we got to connect finally and really just have a conversation and not be um, <laughs> by guidelines and rules and other people's, you know, recording processes and all of that stuff. So it's just been such a pleasure to get to know you. Thank you so, so much for your time. And, you know, I've been looking forward to appearing on this show for a while as well, because oh, I just admire you. the diversity of points of view and the amount of the different personalities you have here, as well as your general love of people and of what you do. And I really admire that very much. Thank and I'm so super much. glad to have been here. Yeah, I'm really glad too. <laughs> and as I have said, you know, earlier, I apologize for my t- tend to be flakiness and my last minute thinking of things. And um, yeah, but overall it works, right? <laughs> I'll clean it up, <laughs> clean it up along the way. <laughs> my ADHD and planning get a little carried away with each other sometimes. <laughs> so thank you so much. But no, it was great to have you here. Um for listeners that might want to, um, you know, have any questions for you or connect, is there any place you'd like people to to send or you can say, I send them to me and I can get questions to you if you'd like after that? That's certainly an option. You can direct questions through Sarah, but you can also uh, you can also follow my uh, Facebook page, Ask Me Mind, um, to Wonderful. see a little bit more about the wacky sense of humor that I have and <laughs> how uh, it can really um allow you to look at the world a little bit differently than mm-hmm. most people. Cause I, and it might be that you have that mind too. When you yeah. look at it, like, <laughs> I thought I share other people's posts all the time and I'm like, they have an nasty mind too. Yeah. Isn't um, that great? I, I also appear uh, at monthly appear groups at uh, mindful behavior LLC where, mm-hmm. and this is mostly for behavior analysts, professionals. Great. Um, and for anybody else that's in this field, that's interested in, receiving guidance and mentorship. I might be starting on that too. So look for my profile there yeah. if that happens. Um, and you can also just uh, send me a friend request um, yeah. online. So you got a lot of different ways. I, I, <laughs> I'm not going nowhere. So <laughs> Not going nowhere. And he's, he's great to talk to. And um, yeah, I, I'm really, really glad that we got to make this connection, Andrew. And I look forward to staying in touch. I hope we can do that. I am really looking forward to continuing uh, to work with you as well. Um, yeah, we get to do that global autism project. And it, that's been so nice to have the support of, of all of these amazing contributors along the way. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, the world no, we're are. building is just going to be a better one. That's that's our, our mission, isn't it? And it has a lot to do with the uh, work that we've already been doing. Um, yeah, so. for sure. So keep in touch, people. Follow us um, in all the right places. Go and check out Ask Me Minds and also look up Andrew Bennett if you want to connect. Thanks so much for joining us today and we'll talk to you guys soon. Mm-hmm.